Hello, I'm George Cup. And I'm Callum Gurr. And you're about to listen to the podcast version of To Be Discussed with Cup and Gurr. Please note that this is a podcast, so it's not a live broadcast. So please do not try to vote in any of the polls or send in messages to any of our discussions, as your message will not be registered, but you may still be charged. Also, please note that not all of the opinions expressed in this podcast are our actual opinions, but may be expressed to create a better discussion. Anyway, enjoy the podcast and don't miss our live broadcast every Sunday on Wizard Radio Station. everybody and welcome to another episode of To Be Discussed with Cup and Gurr. My name is Callum Gurr and I'll be joined by my co-host and political officer, George Cup. Hello everyone. This evening, Callum and I will prove to you that you can have impassioned debates whilst holding vastly different opinions without falling out at the end of the night. So this evening we will be discussing, is the public too quick to blame things on the media? What should the legal voting age be in the UK? And lastly, can dating apps help you find true love? With each of these discussions being accompanied by polls, which you have the chance to vote on at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And these discussions will be open until the end of the song break between each topic. But first, a few weeks ago, we asked you guys to answer the question, how has the coronavirus outbreak affected you? And we've got loads of good uh, opinions in throughout the week so the first one came in from Juliet. Juliet said my school was cancelled this week which was both like good news and bad news good news because I don't like going into school especially when I have so much revision but also worrying because of the exams getting cancelled I was meant to do my A-levels this summer and this coronavirus stuff is really worrying because I've learned so much since my mocks and I didn't do that well in them if my results end up being based largely on my mocks then I probably won't get into my first or second choice of uni. When we went in to do them, we were told that mocks were a test for ourselves uh, to see what we needed to spend more time revising and where we need to improve. This could possibly impact the rest of my life. I mean, George, what, what do you make of that? I mean, obviously, that's quite a big impact of it, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely, Julia. And and I can only sympathise with you for uh, the situation that you're in. Um, but I, from reading the way that the exam board and teachers are going to uh, grade people on GCSEs and A-levels and everything, it it won't just solely be from your mock exam results. They will have a look at what you're doing in in your class. They will have a look at what progression you've made since your mock results as well. And and also... um, I personally think if if the schools are half decent, they will reach out to the students as well um, and try and have a grown-up and sensible conversation, especially during A-levels. And I think they should do this in terms that they should reach out and say, where do you think you would be? Um, because I think that's a good way to assess the situation. And 
I would expect that people would be honest um, by saying, do you know what? If I'm honest, sir, um, I would probably be around a B from the progression that I think I've made. And from that and from the evidence that is um, collected, they will then put down which grade they believe you should you would have got in an exam and i think that in the current situation and the current circumstances that is probably one of the best and only the fairest ways that they can do it because it is very unknown how long this will go on for and um we've got to make sure that the a levels and and gccs and everything take place so that when this is over the progression of school years can carry on. Um, I think the the only other way to to look at this is is possibly uh, delaying exams, but I don't think that is in the best interest of anyone. If I am honest, what do you think, Callum? Yeah, I mean, I completely understand you that why you're why you'd be worried there, um, and uh, I mean, I echo a lot of what George is saying, and uh, and I'd say that. The good thing is that with these uh, calculated grades that are gonna um, gonna come out, um, as George says, they're based upon a variety of things, but also they're coming out. I believe the plan is that they'll come out at the end of July. Yeah. Um, whereas normally um, A level results are, I think they were scheduled to be the 13th of August this year. Um, so you've got that little bit more time to, if you don't end up getting into the uni you want to. Um, to kind of have a bit more of a, a shop around, maybe decide a gap year is better for you. So there is a, a slight benefit to the way that they're doing them this year. Um, and the other thing is you do have the chance to appeal or even um, resit exams when the schools do reopen again. Obviously not quite an ideal situation, um, but there is these kind of contingency plans in place um, so that hopefully it doesn't impact you too much. Um, and you can still kind of do the things you want to do because as you say this this can have a big impact upon your life um but i don't don't think if say the results you end up getting back if they're not maybe the best grades that that you wanted or, or even reflect what you would have got it's not impossible to kind of reverse that or even still just go and still do the things you want to do in your life with maybe not as good grades as as you wanted yeah, absolutely. It Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, Callum. Um, our next opinion comes in from Polly, and she says, the coronavirus has meant that school is cancelled for me, but day-to-day life hasn't changed that much because instead of going into school, we are doing classes online instead, and all of our classes have been replaced with video calls. The biggest impact has been on my mental health. If I'm honest, I'm really struggling with the fact that we don't know when this lockdown, I know it's not an official lockdown, but we're all being told to stay indoors, is going to end. Life has just been thrown up in the air. Will I be able to go on holiday in July? Who knows? How many people are going to die? This is like the Brexit anxiety times a million. Well, Callum, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I very much agree, Polly. I mean, there's, there's, it, there is a massive kind of worry i think from from everyone here uh, and obviously that's like having a, a big impact upon you um and you know you're you're not alone i think in, in being very concerned about when this is going to end i mean I, i've got no shame in saying that when in around about midweek i was very very panicked about this um because suddenly i think but up until that point it felt like something that affected 
maybe other people, but it wasn't going to affect me. Uh, and it, it seems like one of those things like swine flu and bird flu where, um, you know, there was this massive hype and then the actual reality was it didn't have that much of a disruption. Whereas now we, we are seeing obviously a massive disruption and obviously the concern for the loss of life is entirely valid, I think. Um, but I, I mean, I guess the, just kind of tackling the more, I mean, I can't do much in terms of obviously the um, how many people are going to die and things like that. Um, but I think in terms of our own mental health, you know, we, we can um, offer some kind of words in, in terms of that. And, and I'd say that, you know, we just got to make sure that we do stay in contact with our, our friends over video and messages. Um, we do talk about things besides the coronavirus, which is something we've been conscious tonight's show and also try and go outside when we can possibly just in the garden it may well end up being and obviously making sure if it is sort of further afield that we're doing the appropriate social distancing measures and things like that but I think they're the kind of ways that you can kind of stay sane in a sense I mean George what do you think of that yeah I, I again in, in all of this, I can only sympathise in your situation, Holly. Um, and I think the it, it is that scariness of the unknown. We we genuinely don't know the way this is heading. Um, but I think in times like this, we can have the confidence uh, in the government that they are taking the right steps to ensure that um, this isn't getting out of hand, that we are going in the right direction to, to get this under control. Um, and... Callum is so right that we've got to make sure that we look after our mental health during these times because um, and the best people to do that is our friends and the people around us that we love and care for and, and that is over video call there are so many different apps on your phones now where you can all go online and, and, and video call each other and play games on there and stuff and and Callum again is so right in saying that don't let the conversations wholly and solely be part just be about the coronavirus because life isn't just about the coronavirus it's about so much more um and i know it's hard but we have to be optimistic during these times and um we've got to still be able to to laugh about things and and smile at the end of the day yeah yeah i mean yeah there's always kind of light at the end of the tunnel i think uh, so moving on to our last um opinion it's from toby toby said so school's been cancelled, but I haven't really felt the impact of that yet because it's the weekend. I think I'll really feel that on Monday. There's a lot of stress and anxiety, though. Both of my parents work in public-facing roles. In particular, my mum does shift work at a supermarket. She still needs to go out to work, but we don't know how long that will be for. My dad hasn't gone into work for a couple of weeks because of the coronavirus. They're worried about money and also about us having enough food. Because whenever you go out to a shop, there's no food. My mum has been buying stuff at a supermarket she works at, but only at the end of her shift, once a lot of the food has gone. I mean, George, what do you make of that? Obviously, this the supermarket shelves being cleared has been something that we're seeing across the country. Yeah. Well, I, I, firstly, um, Toby, I, I just want to reflect on the stress and anxiety of everything. Again, I would just um, refer to what I said earlier in terms of you've got to make sure you keep contact with those around you. And secondly, um, I want to say thank you to your mum and dad, um, and especially your mum for still going out to work and going, um, being part of the front line in, in the supermarket, because um, it's people like her that is keeping this country turning over and keeping people essentially alive, if I'm honest. Um, and I and I would say that 
let's get this myth out of the way. There is enough food to go around and people need to stop going out and panic buying because it is getting selfish and horrendous out there. Um, there, there is no need to stockpile at all. The, the shops can cope with what is going on. If you are in isolation, there will be people and there are volunteers group that are being set up um, around your local areas that will help you get to the shops and buy things for you there is no need to make sure your cupboards are stocked up with six months worth of food. It's just not necessary in this time. Callum. Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd echo a lot of what you're saying there, George. And I do think that on the supermarket issue, hopefully it will kind of sort itself out a little bit soon. Obviously the demand's gone up a lot recently, but, but that demand won't keep happening. So the kind of supply will, uh, replenish itself I think uh, in terms of the worry in terms of financial worries uh, I mean I think the government is stepping in in many cases um, but we may well see kind of some more measures I, I I very much hope we do see some more measures being announced right then uh, re- good good we uh, remember what the question will be for you to send in your opinions on at the end of tonight's show so make sure you're ready for that for the chance to be featured in this segment of next week's show but we've reached time for our first summer kit this evening so we'll be back very soon Hello and welcome back to To Be Discussed. So let's move on to our second discussion of this evening. And we're asking, is the public too quick to blame things on the media? So as we have just talked about, the whole world is going through a pandemic. It can be hard to tell the truth from a lie and to know what is being said or told is actually credible. Quite often when we face situations like we are, People blame the media for spreading fake news and misleading the public. What do you think, though, Callum, as a budding journalist? Well, I think um, on on the issue of fake news, uh, I think the majority of the blame for that generally lies upon social media, not uh, media in terms of the traditional press. Um, I think if we if we look at most of the fake news that happens, it's about things like, oh, um, my cousin's dog, who is a, a doctor um, yeah. in hospital, has said that we, we've got to do this, this, this. And quite often, a lot of the things are true that we've got to do in terms of in this recent um, coronavirus outbreak. Quite often, it's true, you know, wash your hands for, for 20 seconds more often each day and things like that. But then down the bottom, there's something that's, not wholly true quite often quite often about um uh there's there's one oh if you go out sunbathing then you're not going to get the coronavirus uh, and things like that and that's why hot countries aren't really getting it um which isn't you know completely true there's there's kind of an essence of truth in there but the truth is that the the science isn't really that grounded in, in in what's going on in this coronavirus at the moment anyway and so they can't say that with uh, definitively um so so i think in those cases it's, it's really well-meaning people that are spreading these things that are fake but but that's not being picked up by mainstream newspapers from from what i've seen the, these these false claims about it that is social media ordinary people 
who are obviously trying to get a message out to their friends and families. They're not doing it maliciously. Um, but I would say on that, you've generally got to be looking at what the NHS is saying, looking at what the government's saying and, and trusting that. On the kind of more broader issue of is the public too quick to blame things on the media? I, I, I'm obviously biased, as George kind of alluded to in the introduction, but I think quite often they are. You know, if we if we look at another massive story that happened recently with with Caroline Flat, I mean, obviously what happened there was partly to blame by the media. I completely do accept that. But we also have to look at the fact there's a section of the public who are willing to um, click on those links, that are willing to kind of join in on the chorus of kind of negative voices that were targeted at Caroline Flack on, on social media again. Um, and, and so I think to just blame the media, whilst they are at fault for a lot of things, I think to just blame the media almost absolves um, ordinary people of the blame sometimes, and they also can absolve the government of blames and things like this. And I think we've got to be trying to look at things more in the whole picture and not just um, go into that really recurring thing of, oh, it's all the media's fault, spreading fake news, which, yes, I do agree some newspapers do and some um, broadcasters do sometimes spread fake news, maybe not always maliciously. But I do also think that we, we've got to accept that they're not entirely to blame for things that are going wrong. Um, what do you think, George? Um, I think it, it, the, the whole kind of uh, context of this argument is what way do we define media? Um, if we define media as solely as the newspapers and the main um, outlets of the news, then it's different to how um, if we explain media as social media and including those news outlets, because quite frankly, I think that, um, as I've said before on the show, places like Twitter and Facebook and the people that share them are essentially sharing news and, and sharing fake news, as Callum uh, said earlier. Um, and because of that, in a way, you could kind of call them as as mini journalists because they're spreading news or, or making people aware of things that aren't actually true. People are sometimes in their right to blame the media for certain things that go on. Um, but, but as well, I, I think the main kind of media has to set a story. And quite often people will look at a headline that the media has posted or a news outlet has posted and it isn't the full article. They, the, 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 the newspaper or whoever it may be will, will choose the, the biggest kind of controversial line out of their whole article um, to put as the headline to make people click on that story. But then if you actually click on that story, the, the headline itself doesn't actually really have any meaning in the whole explanation of, of the article. Um, and this is this is the whole thing. I think that in a sense, and it's maybe wrong of me to say, but in a sense, we in ourselves as the public are just amount to blame as the media because we also share those stories and we give fuel to the people that are making fake stories because we share it. We, we want people to see it. Um, 
And I, as I always say, I think I say it on repeat and maybe too often on this show, is that no matter what you come across on Twitter or Facebook, do the research behind it, look into it, read it, see if it is actually true. Because as Callum said, what normally happens is they will have a contact, if we're talking about the coronavirus, for example, within the government, who will give them a very small snippet of an announcement that will be coming out. And then they will turn that into a three-page article or... Um, someone else will get it that isn't a trained journalist and just add utter rubbish onto it. I mean, there was a rumour going around that Prince Charles, uh, Prince Philip had died um, and it was just a load of rubbish, all of this. And it it is very dangerous, this fake news, um, that, it, that can be spread and it is very dangerous to the way that it is being spread as well. Um, it, there are so many examples of how the media, um, and I'm talking about, Twitter and Facebook here um, can make someone feel isolated and make them feel incredibly pressured and depressed by what is being said on there. But as Callum said, people still click on it. People still read it. So in my opinion, the media definitely does not have the whole blame here. It is that a lot of the blame does go with us, the human race. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I agree because I think also, I think too many people quite often are too willing to only read things that agree with their worldview and only retweet things that um, agree with their worldview and, and kind of they they there's a, a section of people that seem to love a conspiracy theory and this isn't yeah. kind of a left or right issue I don't think I, I think this is a an issue of that they don't really like this person anyway so so they they kind of support these conspiracy theories and they give them more traction by by spreading them around. So I do think that, yeah, as you say, George, quite often human beings themselves have, have got to kind of t take a look at, and, and just make sure that we're being responsible people and not kind of adding fuel to the fire. But of course, um, the media in terms of the mainstream press does obviously have a part to play as well. I mean, let's not pretend that the mainstream media is perfect. Uh, I mean, if we look at the recent election, um, we, we saw some some big examples um, in terms of um, the, the mainstream media quite often actually spreading around fake news. I mean, during the election, Laura Kunzberg was tweeting about the fact that a uh, if I remember correctly, a Labour activist had attacked Matt Hancock, I think it was meant to be. Uh, and this turned out to be completely false um, and had actually likely been tipped off by someone within the Conservative Party, probably Dominic Cummins is, is the kind of suggestion of who had done this. But obviously this dragged Labour's name through the mud and seemed to put fuel in the fire in terms of saying that um, the Labour Party had turned to the kind of extreme left, as it were. Um, so I think there's there's definitely evidence of that. I mean, regard just quickly on that point, the, regarding that, there was there was an incident that did happen, and someone and Matt Hancock did did, did get pushed. But uh, the, what happened there was that the news kind of. Uh, made a situation bigger than it ever actually was. I think Matt Hancock got pushed accidentally by this activist. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no malice. So. No, 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 not at all. But it was, it, and that's the thing is that the media are very quick to jump on a story without actually knowing the full, full details sometimes. Um, and because of that, then people make their own details up and spread it and 
then people believe it. Um, a bit of kind of advice, not that I'm qualified to, to give it out, but I'm going to anyway, um, is that in any situation like this, when, when Callum and I first started doing this radio show, um, I am very open to say that I was probably sitting on the verge of um, far right, or, well, not far right, but over to the right-hand <laughs> side of the political spectrum. Um, yeah. And as this show has gone on, it has taught me whenever you come to a debate, you should do your research, not just on your own side of the argument, but on the other side as well. And as time has gone on, I have become more liberal than I ever was before. Um, and I would call myself centre-right, very firmly centre-right, if not sometimes a little bit more centre than right. Um, and that is the whole point, is that you've got to make sure that every single points of the argument have been researched and you're looking into it in depth um, because that way we can ensure that we're spreading the right news. And at a time like this, it is so important that the right news is being spread because the right awareness and the right way of um, going about this, this situation is the only way that we will get through something like this. Definitely. Yeah. And how do you think this poll is going to go, Callum? Um, I think that the uh, people can say, yes, they are too quick to blame things on the media. Um, 55%. What about you? Uh, yeah, I agree with you, but I'm going to go 58%. Um, wow. <laughs> it is now time for our second song break of this evening. So remember to vote on this poll. Is the public too quick to blame things on the media? And you can do that at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And we'll be back after this. Hello and welcome back. So before that break, we asked, is the public too quick to blame things on the media? And you guys have been voting away and 39% of you said yes and 61% of you said no. Well, there you are, Callum. <laughs> we must not be very convincing, George. No, I, I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's probably more you, if I'm honest. Oh, I'm I'm sure. I mean, that's always the thing. It's always my fault, George, as I know. Right then, uh, time to move <laughs> on to our third discussion of this evening. And we are asking, what should the legal voting age be in the UK? So there has long been a debate within the United Kingdom about what the voting age should be. When voting was first introduced, it was for those over 21. In 1970, it changed to 18, which it remains to this day. But should it be lowered? In countries such as Austria and Brazil, 16-year-olds can vote, as they can in Scotland during Hollywood elections. But what do you, you listeners think should be the voting age for UK general elections? Should it be 18, 16, 21 or 15? George, what do you think? Well, there's going to be no surprises, I suppose, when I say that I believe that 18 is a good age to start voting in elections um i well for for i would say probably about three years i've been campaigning to try and get younger people into politics especially the conservative side but in general <laughs> trying to get people into politics um because i think it's right that young people have a voice within politics and uh, and i think no matter their age they should get into politics but 
I have always, and and because of this, whenever I go to talks or whatever, I always then get question, asked the question, well, do you think it should be, the voting age should be lowered? And I say no, because in my opinion, right now, I don't believe the education and awareness is there for people to be able to vote at 16. Um, and I know that's quite controversial, um, but I, I think that the understanding of, of politics just isn't there in this current climate um, and the current academic situation that we have and for me if I look at myself when I was 16 yes I was starting to get involved in politics but at the same time I don't think I could have made a decision to vote and I know a lot of people will probably be saying the same well it's just voting it's just one vote but one vote can make all the difference in general elections sometimes um, and referendums sometimes so I think it's it is very kind of uh, a controversial issue. But my opinion on this is that we should have politics as a, um, a lesson within our schools so that people can understand what is going on. People can understand the parties. People can understand the political structure that we have in this country so that then we can lower the age to 16. Now, obviously, there is always that argument of where is the limit? Because it, there is possible that when we get to 16, then you're going to have 15 year olds that turn around and say, well, why can't we get down to 15? Because I, I'm no fool when I say that I think 16 year olds are a lot more mature than they were possibly when I was 16, because society is very different from when I was 16. I know it's only what, six or seven years ago, but even still, it's still quite a big difference. Um, so for me, 18 is the key date for now, but in the future, I would hope that we are in a better situation where we can lower that 16. Callum? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, I agree with you. 18, I think, should be the voting age still. Um, but I I'm interested in terms of um, just picking up on what you're saying about politics, obviously forming kind of a compulsory part of ed education to try and um, make sure that if we give 16-year-olds the right to vote, they're actively engaged in that. Do you not think it's a worry, though, that um, generally speaking, teachers tend to be quite left-wing? Uh, and, and is there a worry that even if that was the case, would you be turning around to me and saying, well, 16-year-olds shouldn't have the right to vote because um, the, the, the teachers are, are too left-wing and they're, t they're telling them to vote Labour? Uh, do you think that's a pr an issue it, we, we could face? Absolutely. I, I definitely believe there is an issue of that. But as much as I am a conservative and I believe a conservative government will run this country better, I don't think just because of someone's influence, we should then deny them that vote. I, I'm all for I'm a I'm a Democrat before I am a conservative. And I think that even though um, they might be taught some way, we should then also trust those people to be able to make up their own mind on what they're being taught. And I would trust our teachers to stick to the um, plans that we give them as a government that make sure that they give an equal argument. I mean, obviously, you're always going to have those that will argue better for Labour or teach the Labour issues better, or even the Liberal Democrats better. Um, and you might have few that teach Conservative better. But 
you know we can be wishful um <laughs> but i i i do think there is that issue yes but i don't think that should be any reason in the future not to lower the voting age to 16. i would say and it's a question for you as well callum as you said that you do roughly agree with what i'm saying i i do think that the way or we should kind of trial this out or have a starting point of vote, having voted 16 is like um eu citizens are we should allow people of 16 to vote in local elections just to see just to start that engagement of voting yeah i mean i i think i agree with you there i mean i, I see no problem actually in immediately giving 16 year olds the right to vote in local elections because um they're they're not quite as uh, impactful shall we say yeah um as what um what national elections can be and, and um also referendums as well um but i think it's an interesting thing about um referendums because um in the scottish um independence referendum we saw 16 year olds that was their first opportunity to vote before into um the parliament in general um, and what we saw there was that there was a massive actual a vote turnout for 16 to 17 year olds in, in that. So um, this this is self-reported statistics. So they might they're not inclined to be completely accurate. But the self-reported turnout for 16 to 17 year olds was 75 percent in that referendum, um, which compares to in general 18 to 24 year olds was 54 percent. So we're actually seeing. Uh, in those elections, uh, or in that ref referendum, rather, um, 16, 17 year olds actually turning out and voting a lot. Um, and also in Austria, which is one of the countries where 16, 17 year olds uh, have the right to vote, and they've had so uh, that right for about 10 years or so, um, we also see that 16, 17 year olds actually outvote uh, 18 to 21 year olds. Um, so you know, that maybe there is evidence there that 16, 17 year olds should have the right to vote because they would actually go out and do it. Um, but I do think that poses the question, George. Do you think that you would have voted differently at 16 years old to what you do now? And if so, who would you have voted for? <laughs> I don't want to admit who I'd voted for. Um at 16, I'm trying to think what how what year was 16 to when I was 16, Callum? I'm not very good at maths, George. I'm gonna um, okay, probably 2013, I would say, off the top of my head, 2014, 2013. Yeah. So, yeah, somewhere about then, yeah, so possibly. Uh, because that was kind of the the the, the birth of uh, UKIP and everything, and and getting out of the EU, I would have possibly have voted either UKIP or Conservative. Um, I wouldn't have voted any other way. It would have been one of those two. What do you think, Callum? Where where would you have voted? Would you have been a Lib Dem, or would you have uh, gone down um, to to Labour? Well, truthfully, I think I was quite apolitical then. But probably I would have voted Lib Dem or Conservative, probably more likely, just because I remember, I don't know, because that would have been 2010, actually. No, so Lib Dem, actually, I would definitely would have voted for. I got my dates mixed up. Um, but no, I definitely would have voted Lib Dem, actually, now I think about it, because I was quite relatively supportive of uh, of Nick Clegg. Although, as you know, I've, I've not always been the most uh, biggest fan <laughs> of him. Um, but I, I mean, I guess obviously that's quite interesting because 
politically speaking, I suppose that shows that our political views haven't changed a massive amount uh, in that time. So maybe that gives even further strength to the idea that 16-year-olds should have the right to vote. Right then. Um, well, first of all, actually, George, before we go to a break, who do you think or what do you think is going to come out on top here? I am going to say that uh, 16-year-olds will come out on top here. What do you think? Yeah, I, I very much agree with you there. Right then, it's time for you guys to vote away on that question. So it's what should the legal voting age be in the UK? You can do that at wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen. And those options are 18 years old, 16, 21 or 15. And we'll be back very soon. Hello and welcome back. So before the break, we asked, what should the legal voting age be in the UK? And you guys have been voting away. So 50% of you said 18-year-olds, 38% of you said 16-year-olds, 9% 15-year-olds, and 3% 21 years old. So, George, we were uh, we were wrong again, but I guess on this one, maybe we were a little convincing. I was going to say, we, we've uh, completely uh, contradicted ourselves from, from earlier. Yes, yeah. Oh, but, which is um, nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm very surprised at that, that one, though, to be honest. I'm, I'm, so, so high for 18 yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Really, really surprising. Really very much surprising. But there you go. There you yes. go. Right. Okay, so let's move on to the uh, fourth discussion. Um, some might say the most important one of this evening. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the question is, can dating apps help you find true love? It seems that in so I have to make sure I don't laugh. Um, it seems today uh, that in today's society, it is becoming increasingly hard to meet people when you're out and about. So people turn to dating apps to see whether they can find that person that will take their heart away. Given that many of us are isolating, maybe it is the only way we can find love right now. Callum, what do you think? I don't want anyone to take my heart away, George. Maybe make it skip a beat or something, but it seems quite drastic to take my heart. Um, no, uh, in all seriousness, I, I do think you can find true love from dating apps. I don't actually particularly use them much myself. Um, and I think that certain dating apps have a more successful ratio to others in terms of securing a more long-term relationship mm. um but i do think that in general you know we, we are seeing a lot of people nowadays who are with long-term partners through um dating apps that's how they first met so i do definitely think that there is that possibility there um to to meet someone on there and find true love if such a thing even exists um because I, I don't know entirely what it means as such um, but, but what do you think, George? Do you, are you hopeful that on Tinder you're going to find the <laughs> one? <laughs> uh, um, I I I don't know really. It's hard to tell. I, I think it's it over dating sites like Tinder and um, whatever it's called, Bumble. Um, it, it's hard to to have that kind of level of conversation over a, a phone. Um, I think it's so much easier to be able to actually do it face to face. But in a 
changing society where we're, we are all glued to our phones, um, it's harder to do that. But but also, I think one of the the hard things with dating sites is that when you start when you're on them and you start talking to someone, you start obviously because you want the conversation to get going. You you ask all these questions, and then when you come to see them face to face. The normal <laughs> questions you would normally ask them, you run out of. So you're onto the the really rubbish questions, like what's your favourite colour. <laughs> but I mean, is that an uh, an issue with dating apps, or is that just a, an an issue in the way we communicate in general? Because obviously, quite often nowadays, you you don't just go up to someone in a cafe or a pub or whatever and um, go and and speak to them as such quite often you'll be speaking to them on uh, through some kind of messaging first so is that not just a problem in general with with just the way that we date or at least court people now i don't i don't know what you're talking about i i i go to everyone where i go um yeah but you get drinks thrown in your face george so i don't think that's a good advertisement i thought that's them buying me a free drink (laughs) <laughs> if you catch it it is i suppose but um, <laughs> you're not you, as we know george you're not that good at sport but all right mate um <laughs> that was really unnecessary um yeah, what no. what what um out of all the dating apps which is your favorite would you say blimey you make it sound like i'm some connoisseur who's tried out a lot of them i've only tried to rubbish uh, tinder and bumble oh like come you. on Come on, you you try that more than that. I don't. Callum, you've been single for so long, you've probably created one. (laughs) (laughs) It's in the works. Comes out next year, guys. You're gonna love it. What's Uh, it called? Um, um, I don't know. The name's in development still because I'm not that quick-witted, George. um, (laughs) As anyone that's ever tried um to to see me has has found out. Um. But no, so out of those two, I think, see, I like, I, I prefer the idea of Bumble because it takes the pressure off of me, but also <laughs> uh, because basically for those who are unaware on Bumble, the girl has to message first. Mm. Um, but then you quite often just don't get any messages. But then again, I don't really on Tinder either. So I just don't really like dating apps, to be honest. Well, I mean, what's your favorite one? Um, well, I, I one that's coming up for me is, is a data site called Hinge. I think it's called Hinge. Oh, um, I've heard of that. Oh. It's it's actually pretty interesting. But I mean, my it sounds really bad, but the most successful one where I've actually been able to talk to people is is Tinder. Um, so I, it would definitely be a balance of those two because I, I like the idea of Hinge because you actually get to know more about that person before you um, say you like them or not. Whereas obviously on Tinder you've got a bit of a bio and then the pictures which just isn't the same um it's harder to, to tell what their personality is like or or what their achievements are and everything from tinder um but callum how do you think this is going to go do you think people are gonna are convinced that true love is available on your phone yeah i i think so um 70 will say yes what about you yeah i think around about 73 percent will say yes um <laughs> let, right let's move on to our final song break of this evening um, and don't forget to vote on this poll can dating apps help you find true love and you can do that wizard raid at code uk forward slash listen and we'll be back after this
Hello and welcome back. So before that break, we asked, can dating apps help you find true love? So 71% of you said, yeah, they can help me find true love. And 29% of you said, no, they can't. Well, Callum, we were spot on the money, really, weren't we? <laughs> well, I, I think um, I was a bit closer, George. So I've got a massive grin on my face right now. But um, you tried, and that's that's what's important. Sorry, what you what you don't actually know, it was 719 so I was <laughs> closer. So. Uh, of course it was, George. Of course. That's what they all say. <laughs> all right, mate. Calm down. Um, right. So thanks for listening, everybody, to uh, this episode of To Be Discussed. I, I so hope you have enjoyed this episode and you're, uh, we've helped lighten the mood slightly this evening. So as mentioned earlier, for the first segment of next week's show, we'd like you to send in your questions for George and I to answer. You can send in those questions by email to station at wizardradio.co.uk or through Twitter, that's at wizradio. So remember to send in your questions for George and I to answer, and we're looking forward to hearing those next week. But it's now time for George and I to say ciao for now. So I have been Callum Gurr. And I have been George Cup. I cannot say it enough. Please stay safe, everybody. Look after yourselves. Um, and keep talking to people as much as you can over the apps and everything you've got on your phone. It's most important. But Caleb and I will be here at the same time and the same place next week for another episode of To Be Discussed. <laughs>